Welcome to Food and Loathing, coming to you from the town where all of our beverages taste sweeter than yours because we're drinking them from Lord Stanley's cup. Yeah, baby. Oh, I am your host, Al Mancini, and I wanted to start you off with that image because this week's show may get a little controversial. I may express some opinions with which you disagree. I may perhaps offend you. And Gemini may very well make you cry with one of her interviews today. So I want you to have that image to think about when you start to get angry at me or a little sad. And hopefully it'll remind you that no matter the points on which we disagree or how sad the world may be, we are all one family. And for this moment in time, all is right with the world. Unless, of course, you had money on the Panthers, in which case you can respectfully suck it. <laughs> I think that's a great intro. <laughs> As you can hear, I am joined this week, hosted my co-host, my um, my brilliant protagonist, co-protagonist, <laughs> and the person who has um, lent out her gorgeous backyard for us to record this week, offthestrip.com's amazing food writer, Samantha Gemini Stevens. How are you feeling this morning with this I'm... being recorded just hours after we watched the I night? know, right? Yeah, we, we decided to keep it really chill. We had some people here in the backyard to watch it, so I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to people or deal with crowds. And we still got to scream and yell and root for our team, and I think it was the best night ever. Well, it was a great night. I was, at, I was in the fortress. Um, it was funny. I didn't oh. get to eat yesterday. And um, we went to the fortress early. We didn't eat. Um, got in there like literally the doors opened at 5:30. Got to see um, the very tail end of Steve Aoki spinning in front. Got to see the flyover by just oh, tail, yeah. you know, just a little bit. It's hard to see. By the way, it is hard to see a fucking flyover in a dome. by F-16s <laughs> when you're in something like Toshiba Plaza because you know there's there's giant buildings on every side of yep. you. When you're on the Las Vegas Strip. And F-16s, if you didn't know, go really fast. Really fast. I think they're F-16s. Sorry if I'm getting no disrespect to my the, the good people up at um, Nellis. If I got the name of your plane wrong, I do apologize. But, oh, man, it was fun. So we got in there early. We got in there at 3.30, 3.45 for a 5 o'clock game. Plenty of time to eat. I know who my favorite food vendors are. I just, I, man, I don't want to say I was too nervous to eat, but I yeah. was amped up and i was not like in the mood to eat went the whole fucking game not eating man didn't get a pizza on the way home (laughs) but um it was a great pizza it was a great game it was a great night um golden knights man we love you guys and congratulations to everybody um for those of you who tune in to hear the podcast world's most rocking and rolling engineer rich johnson bit of sad news this week he's currently on the road and unavailable while we're recording this which are like the only hour that we had in common this week to record (laughs) uh but we will he will still be working all his technical magic behind the scenes which means if you hear us at all he's done his job he's fixed our fuck-ups which tend to be my fuck-ups mostly (laughs) We always begin the show trying to make you hungry with stories of our recent meals, and we're kind of doing that right now. But if it's okay with Gemini, I want to start with this week's big controversy. (laughs) Do it. Oh, I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. Do it. Something happened this week that has the internet divided. Some people are incredibly excited to see it happen after waiting for so long. We've been just hoping it was going to happen, and we're celebrating. Others are appalled, angry, disgusted, or just unimpressed. (laughs) It's a topic that has the potential to pit neighbor against neighbor. And if you've been reading anything on that worldwide web of ours, you probably already know what I'm referencing. 
No, man, not that shit down in Miami. I'm talking about a new bakery opening in the Arts District, and people seem a little divided a little about bit. whether that's a good or a bad thing, right? I mean, am I fair to say this is a it's, little minor controversy in the world? I would say for our little thing, uh, our little area, um, it's it's a pretty major okay, thing. Okay, yeah. There's some strong opinions out there this week. Oh, I got some strong opinions, and Rich <laughs> isn't here to wind me up today. So, people, I am flying high off the adrenaline of last night, and I'm pissed off at some posts <laughs> I've seen on the internet. You ain't never heard me like this before, and I'm going to have some fun today. Oh, my God, here we go. You may recall that last week I was just a little confused about what was going on at 1228 Main on Main Street in the Arts District. I think you were confused as well. I'd read a Jonathan Wright story in the Review Journal about a former Wolfgang Puck executive opening a new spot. I read it very quickly as we were preparing to go on air. I admitted that. I didn't have any details at my fingertips. I fucked up by saying it was a Tom Kaplan project. A total slip of the tongue since Tom is a Puck ex- former, longtime Puck, Puck exec. I've known him for a while. Um, but Jonathan's story, the, the only one out there at the time, to my knowledge, had actually positioned 1228 Maine as a David Robbins project. David being another longtime Puck exec. So my mea culpa to David and Tom on the brain fart and getting their names confused. <laughs> totally. That one's me. I blow. I, I, I admit when I'm wrong, man. No you problem. Uh, a day or two after we recorded, I don't think it was the same day, it was a day or two, I decided to visit 1228 Maine. I grabbed a seat at the bar sometime around maybe noonish. I ordered a sandwich from the brunch menu. I took in the rather nice whiskey collection, although I didn't order anything. You know, I don't drink that much, and certainly not day drink that much with whiskey. (laughs) Um, I was soon greeted by several folks from the Wolfgang Puck group, organization, etc. I saw Scott Irestone, a longtime top chef within the organization. Not sure exactly what his position is, but great guy. I saw Puck's Las Vegas director of culinary, Dustin Lewandowski, and 1228 Maine's exec chef, Alex the Czar, came out to say hi. And again, I didn't make any calls, just wandered in. Yeah. Said, what the fuck you guys got going on? There's something weird going on. I want to learn about it. That's the way I approach when I don't have information. I say, <laughs> let me learn. Um... To be fair, though, I'm going to go ahead and jump in. Yeah, jump in. Tell me why. To be fair, the average human walking in, sitting at the bar, ordering a sandwich, and you know, what looking at their beautiful whiskey collection isn't going to have all these people come out and say hi to them. They certainly are not, but they (laughs) will have the great bartender that I had who was answering my questions and was very, very cool as well. And I'm sorry, I forget his name. But my point in mentioning that they were all there was, if there's any question that this is a Wolfgang Puck fucking project, right? There's the people who were there as I walked (laughs) in the fucking door. Okay, so good. You think that's a good thing? You think it's a bad thing? They're on the fucking property. Okay, yeah, that's great. Um, so, uh, as soon actually, the chef sent me out some bread. Okay, gorgeous selection of six breads, unfucking believably good. And we're going to get to why they're so good soon. But I dare you to show me better breads in Las Vegas. Um. And I know the good bread makers, but I, I stand by this. Um, sent me out the bread. Sent me out some, uh, uh, they call it chicken foie, so chicken liver um, spread yep. put on it. They sent me out a, a, a was it a regatta? Um, yeah, an, another spread. They sent me an herb butter, a green herb butter that the pastry chef did up. They were fucking great, man. This to me was, I don't even need the sandwich, right? Like, I mean, you <laughs> sent me a bread and spread. Right, you get all that. And, you're basically making all these little sandwiches. Yeah, and I, I'm just <laughs> loving this shit, man. And um, then my, my sandwich came out and it was fantastic. Also on absolutely amazing bread is a pastrami thing, kind of a Rubenesque type of situation Ooh. that I was in. Good French fries, digging it, having a good time. Um, but as after I'd ordered and this stuff had come out, 
I had asked all of these guys, hey, can one of you talk to me and kind of clear up what the fuck's going on with this restaurant? Yeah. You know, because... Because you know, there's they're, still confusion. They're not doing any... They've done no media. No media. Maybe they spoke to Jonathan Wright. I assume they did. He had quotes in that article, right. but not doing anything Yeah, if you go back and look at their social media, it was just, we're opening soon, we're opening soon, we're right. opening soon. There's not a whole lot of detail up to that point. Yeah, and I, before I went over, I checked the website. No hours, no nothing, no no telling you anything about it. It was still coming soon, right? Still is. Right, which, which means we have a soft opening, and we'll get into what that means <laughs> shortly and why you people should show that some fucking respect, but I'm getting there. I think I'm getting the chefs on my side out there right now, but at the people I'm losing. At the least. Um, so Dustin said he would come and he would sit down with me and we, we would talk about it. So I finished my meal. I sat down with Dustin. I wanted to know who the fuck's running this place. What the fuck kind of place is this? What are you people doing? You haven't put out a press release. Nothing's happening. Please, my friends, tell me what's going on. Here's our conversation. First things first, congratulations on the opening. You kind of snuck it in quietly, unlike Las Vegas where things are always big hoopla, red carpet, craziness. Um, but people discovered you, I, it appears, from the minute you opened your doors. So how's it going? It's going great. And that was kind of uh, intentional. We tried to to um, kind of do a soft opening, get get acquainted. We had to, we had to roll a bakery down here from, uh, from our strip location and uh, get acquainted with the neighborhood and get acquainted with the new building. So we wanted to take our time figuring it out and, and uh, did, did a small you know, media on, on social media, kind of teased it a little bit and, and started getting the word out and then, then slowly opened the doors on Monday. So. Um, so can we clarify, is this a Wolfgang Puck Group restaurant? It is. So, um, we're all part of the Wolfgang Puck Group. Um, we've been producing bread for all of our restaurants um, out of the Lupa restaurant for many years, and, and we've always kind of been looking, loved the idea of having a standalone bakery. And uh, as, as we developed the thoughts of a standalone bakery, we kind of thought what else we could do with it. And, and uh, when the Main Street location came up and the concept, we thought it'd be, you know, fun to do something in the neighborhood. So. Why did, you, why did you want to come to the Arts District, and why did Chef Puck perhaps want to come to the Arts District? And what does it say about the state of off-strip dining right now, that we have the MENA Group going into the Southwest, we have Wolfgang Puck Group now in the Arts District? I mean, it seems like, finally, the big boys from the Strip are very excited about off-strip. Um, we, we've all been working on the Strip for some of us. I, I've been on the Strip for 20-plus years, and, and I know our, our partners have been there for 30. And... Uh, it's nice to come down and be part of the community, you know, in, in, on the strip, we're obviously in the hotels, you know, dealing with um, leisure travelers and conventions and and, uh, and, and the like. And, and to, to be down here and to be, you know, face to face with, with our, lo our local community on a daily basis is, is special. So could you explain the concept of this restaurant? Sure. Uh, first and foremost, it's a bakery, and uh, it's where we're producing all of our bread for all of all of our Wolfgang Puck restaurants, and and we're expanding and taking on some wholesale accounts too, some other restaurants in town. Um, you know, selling bread retail here in the uh, in the shop, and uh, and trying to expand that as, as we as we get going. Um, from there, it's a breakfast restaurant that serves coffee and um, uh, pastries, patisseries. So we've, we've got amazing croissants and danishes and different lacquered doughs, and, and, uh, and we're having a great time producing that. So we kind of wanted to show, showcase some of the talent of some of the, the pastry chefs in our company and, uh, and, and serve with great coffee. And then from there, we, we develop into, into lunch and, and try to focus on our bread as well, too, with the sandwiches and the, uh, the different built-for-bread concept that we have. 
and uh, a little bit later on, we're, we'll be a, a dinner restaurant as well too. And we want that to kind of be more of a destination, you know, cocktail bar, uh, dining experience. So, um, when will when are you thinking it may open for dinner? Um, we're we're gonna start menu testing, um, doing some of the plating next week, and we hope uh, possibly the following week we could get open. So, but again, we're gonna do that kind of soft and under the radar too, and and, uh, and and announce to the world when we're when we're ready. So, just looking at the um, the lunch menu, however, you know you have things that look really totally geared for people doing a, a night out, a night in the arts district, maybe before they go to the theater across the street or something like that, and but also taking advantage of your your strengths here. And I look at this built for bread section of the menu. Could you tell me a bit about that? Well, we, uh, our, our, our bread department makes, makes amazing bread. That we, they make six or seven different varieties. And uh, for us, it was uh, being able to showcase that bread and, and uh, creating um, different, different things that complement the bread well. You know, um, our pastry chef Sebastian is, uh, is making our own butter out of Strauss cream uh, with Malden sea salt. We're, uh, we made a chicken foie mousse. Um, we kind of went vegetal with the, uh, the spring garlic butter that we're making with, uh, with a leek oil. Um, we've got sheep's milk ricotta. So just, just all things that kind of uh, are nice to, to take a piece of bread and, and, uh, and give it a little schmear. So. Cool. Well, everything I had was fantastic. I'm going to go get some pastries to take home to my wife so we can enjoy them over the weekend if you have them, man. If they're gone, that's okay. I'll come back, man. But congratulations on everything. Thank you so much. We're still trying to figure out our pars. You know, I think we're making pastries at about 150 a day, and people are buying them by the boxes, and, and uh, we're lucky to make it till noon. So. So. Uh, but what time are you open? We open at 7 a.m. Um, during the week, I believe 8 on the weekends. And uh, we do breakfast until 11 and then uh, a transition to lunch uh, by 11.30. And uh, I think we're currently open at lunch until 3 p.m. Um, yeah. Okay, sounds great, man. Once dinner's open, we'll have the bar, uh, kind of a bar menu that transitions into our dinner. And then and we hope to, to serve dinner into the night and then uh, keep the cocktail bar open uh, as late as, as there's demand. So you get the basics. Yeah, this is Wolfgang Puck Fine Dining Group restaurant. Um, yes, they are no, they are a bakery, bakery at the heart and soul. They're a commercial bakery. They're giving stuff to their other restaurants. They're selling things to non-Wolfgang Puck restaurants. They've opened up this great bakery to the public. And they're currently making breakfast. They're making lunch. They want to expand to dinner. Okay, that's the gist of it. Cool. Dustin also um, told me who their publicist was, so I gave her a call immediately. I said, can I get a press release? She said, we don't have one finished because they want a soft opening. They don't want me sending out a press release. They don't want people having expectations. They're still working out what's going on. But she sent me a rough draft as a courtesy, and at some point later in the day, not knowing there was any controversy around this joint, <laughs> I posted a few food photos on Facebook because I'm old and I still use Facebook. Hell yes. Um, so comments on my food photos usually range from, wow, that looks good to, hey, asshole, learn how to take better pictures. <laughs> In the comments section this time, I found one by my dear friend sitting across <laughs> the table from me right now, Gemini, noting that she had been there that same day. They weren't serving food between 11 and 1130. Um, not a complaint. No, Just not an observation. Really. Okay. At this point. At that point. <laughs> so that's interesting. Good fact. Good to know. Although, with this being a soft opening, I get the feeling things are changing all the time, but good to know. 
Then I go looking in the replies. Oh, boy. Never and look at the replies. Gemini's <laughs> counter replies. Um, and suddenly I'm seeing some um, animosity towards this project. Bartender we both know through social media replied twice, saying that the place annoys her, and then complaining about the hours and the fact that they're closed on Sundays, and the, quote, redundant menu, and the, quote, initially undisclosed straight corporate WP management. And then the quote, no new offering or hours, and the fact that, oh, okay, no, no new offering and hours, end quote. And then one other quote, this is a direct compete with almost everyone. Um, she concluded that one of her replies by saying, I find it dirty. Which, if you can trash a restaurant, I mean, like, that's, that's fucking, you know, that's like kind of, that is the motherfucker of, you know, restaurant slams, calling it dirty. Oh, that's a big finger to the, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. Look. People say what you like, but it's my page. I get to respond. I got a podcast. You don't. So <laughs> all good. And by the way, I invited this person on the podcast yeah. anytime she wants to be on. I'm, yeah. ju I'm just kidding. Absolutely. No animosity towards her either. Um, you I think she would enjoy it, actually. Yeah. I Look, I love it, man. And you wouldn't have to be a stand-in for everything that I'm not happy about. Um, you responded in a way that seemed to commiserate with her, saying, well, among other things, I assure you, the annoyance and mad were high. Yep. So I'm going to add to that. That was a direct quote. And I've already reached out to her to make sure I can say her name from our friend Jolene Menino. Uh, we were meeting for lunch to catch up and talk about some stuff. And nobody had approached her. Nobody had talked to her about how it worked. Nobody. I was still parking the car. Um, and so she did make a similar comment on their social media. And uh, she did it in such a way and, and said to me that she did it in such a way that it wants she wants it to be constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. But for the moment, yeah, we were sitting there kind of mad because when you walk up to the counter, they point to the menu behind them, the digital menu that says lunch and mm -hmm. offers salads and a few sandwiches and whatever else they're doing. And then when we go to order food, we're told mm -hmm. there's no food for half an hour because the kitchen is closed between breakfast and lunch for those 30 minutes. Yeah, so, so they've been open like a week, and they've fucked some things up. And sure. Again, it's kind of what a soft opening was. I was once I, I once reviewed a Toby Keith restaurant where it took me well, over an hour and a half to get my first dish. But, you know, and be, but, you know, even in my review of it, I said they were only open a week, and things happened, and at least they were attentive, and they were kind enough to, to cover it up. So, sure. you know, that's my view. We cut people slack. You hear in this, this sure. thing, every time I tell people that a restaurant is soft opening on this podcast, I warn them, be fucking nice. This is what soft opening means. People right. are going to be working right. out problems. But that's where my commiseration comes from, because as, as I walked in, you know, some people know who I am, some people don't. That's fine. Um, you know, I don't expect all the chefs to come out and start talking to me or anything like that. But the annoyance for me and the big mad um, that came from Jolene when we were sitting there waiting for our tea, because it's really the only thing we could order at the time, was the fact that, again, nobody seemed to want to help us figure it out. Nobody offered any other information. Somebody literally pointed to the digital menu board behind them and then asked us what we wanted and then told us, Oh, I'm sorry, we're not serving food between 11 and 11.30. Yeah. The people were nice enough, mm -hmm. but the system was screwed up. It just wasn't ready. Uh, yeah. And I, there was a line of people behind us by the time we got to the counter. Now, when we got there, thankfully, there wasn't much of a line. But there's no explanation giving this. And that's where mm -hmm. my commiseration and the big mad and all of and, that And, and this is why people like us fuck it up for restaurants. I mean, let's make this clear. When a restaurant tries to soft open, you, I, 
Everybody else we in the run world out there. runs the fuck out there <laughs> when they're just trying to get their shit together. I mean, these guys that you heard, they, they thought they were going to make 150 pastries a day and it was going to cover them through. And, yeah, I heard you know, they're they, already they were selling out. out like, you know, within a few <laughs> hours. So, you know, that shit happens. And Dustin explained that. Um, but going back to the Internet, you went on to say that a lot of people have expressed unhappiness with the way the place opened. Man, that really flipped a switch in my head. But before I go into a rant, perhaps unjustified, about privileged food snobs who think restaurants <laughs> owe them shit, I would love to hear your take on this firsthand. Then I shall rant. And perhaps we can have a short discussion or maybe a longer war. Either way, it'll be fun. <laughs> it'll make good listening. You and I are buddies. That's we right. love each other at the end of the day. So yeah. you tell me tell me your experience. Tell me the complaints you're hearing about. Yeah. So, I mean, the, ba- the basic experience walking in the door, you know, I've shared that part. But then people started reaching out to me because of the thread um, and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, there's a lot going on about this 1228 Maine. So um, anonymously, one person sent me pictures of McDonald's restaurants of all places and said they looked better. First of all, the place is beautiful. It's just I a, like it. It just needs some tweaks. It feels it's, like a fucking deli. It feels like a bakery. The it one thing I feel... don't like is the cafeteria style thing. Yeah, but that's like that is. I a wish style. that trend would die. Yeah, but it is a trend. <laughs> so like, oh no, Wolfgang Puck has eight hundred fucking restaurants, and this one isn't decorated the way I like. Wow. I don't mind it being less decorated. This one isn't the style that I like. Right. Well, I just I don't cut. like the cafeteria trend. Go to Cuck. Go to Wolfgang Puck Players Locker. Oh. Go to, you know, Spago. There's a lot of them out there. Yeah, you can still come take my order. I, I am oh, that oh kind my of person. God. Okay, did I say entitled? Have I mentioned that <laughs> word yet in this? Because people at home keep the word entitled in mind as we go through the rest of this conversation. Okay, so uh, somebody else sent me, these guys are fully capable of opening a restaurant without all this weirdness. Why aren't they, and aren't they all from corporate? Walk in the door and open and be ready. Uh, so basically be perfect on day one. Yeah. Because I'm sure whoever this person anonymously is, if we go back to their first day on their job, they were fucking perfect. Uh, you know, I am one of the ones that said uh, that I ca- I did call it a corporate fucking behemoth at one point. Um, oh, and- well, oh, oh, good, cool. You oh, I did. I'm taking notes, baby. I, did, okay. yeah, I hope you are. Um, and part of that was that I decided to dig in a little bit as to how they were doing their hiring and realize that a lot of it was like Indeed and something called Mari and, you know... I just wish there was more of like, hey, we're doing a hiring event at this place. I know that there was one or two, but no. they were doing they, everything they brought in. It seems to be corporate. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah the, the Wolfgang. Okay, okay, go continue. continue. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I just felt like there could have been more of a social, actual media push for community people looking for work. Yeah, you know, and you bring up, and this won't even be something I'll counter. It is, it's a point worth noting. That when people open in the arts district, um, do they have more of a responsibility, as James Trees has said, that he's brought in a lot of artists, artists from the arts district yeah. to be servers in his restaurants? Or um, do they have more of a responsibility to bring in people that are hosp- that, that, that provide the level of hospitality that um, we expect in Las Vegas because we are hospitality snobs and we expect the best? Right. Wolfgang Puck develops the best. Wolfgang Puck promotes from within house among the best. Um, I think he's pretty fucking capable of staffing up with some great people. The bartender I had had worked at his restaurants on the Strip. Sure. So he was not hired through Indeed. He was you know, and, developed and maybe, through an maybe in-house program. Maybe that's so, there. but the, the ads are out there. And I just, like I said, this is more of an opinion rather than a fact because I am not part of their HR team. I just wish there had been more of that sort of, hey, we're coming into your community. We have this thing that we're opening. We need X number of 
front of house, back of house, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I wish there had been more of that out there. And I will dis- respectfully disagree with you a little later on the fact that you think <laughs> Wolfgang Puck is coming into freshly any fucking community I in this didn't town. Say it when that he way, built but we'll talk about it. Okay. <laughs> um, and then uh, somebody else. I'm no food critic, but why does it feel like we're trying to kiss the ass of every big name that walks in the door versus keeping some places truly organic and local? And who's kissing their ass? I hadn't heard anything about it, but okay. I think it's more of the, oh, it's Wolfgang Puck and everybody's up in arms saying, oh. Even though his name's not on it, by the way. Let's make that clear. He did not put his name on it, which is why some people no, are mad. No, but it's been called a Wolfgang people... Puck project even before it was built. That's because people knew who was negotiating for real estate oh. and stuff down there. That's But not being called by his people, by sure. gossip hounds. Sure, but by again. gossip hounds who t- then get mad about the fucking <laughs> gossip they create. This is the world we live in. We create the gossip, then we get mad about the fucking gossip we yeah. create. Okay, go on, go on. No, I think we've pretty much covered them. Yeah, I mean, uh, some of them are basically repeats. You know, if it's being opened by a truly local and organic operator in a district that was made for those kinds of operators, would people be so hard up to defend it, or would the more relaxed view of giving it time to get its footing be more ready? Yeah, I, I don't that even That one know. is, I thought, was actually pretty insightful. <laughs> I may have to ponder that a but little it, longer. But again, it goes to people like, I mean, I love our listeners. Not all of them get the same opportunities that we do. Um, and no, But everybody had the opportunity to do what we both did when we had both very different experiences. We both to did go the same in and thing check on it out. One, sure. To go in and check it out. Sure. Right? And to ask questions. But it also depends on your schedule because I... They're, I mean, they're not doing dinner yet. So if you're going to go in in the first few weeks, you have to be going in for breakfast. Or right. Lunch. So then don't go in until it's serving what you want. But I mean, I see when, okay, well, cool enough. <laughs> cool enough. Cool enough. Because I, I, I want to stay more organized. Yeah, uh, no, my, that's my fair. Um, so, okay, look, before I go on to defend the place, inevitably get called an ass kisser, as you've kind of referenced up <laughs> top already, or a shill, or a cheerleader, or any of the other shit I get called whenever I suggest certain customer complaints make them sound like entitled little brats. I'd like to share a little bit about my philosophy on food writing and food coverage. Please. Forgive me if this gets a little too Jim Brockmire for you. <laughs> and I hope you get that reference. <laughs> Can you? do as many voices as he can. <laughs> no, I can't. But if I cannot wax philosophic <laughs> about my career here on this podcast, where the fuck can I do it, I right? mean... So, look, my defense of restaurants against what I see as unfair attacks stems from many, many years as a professional critic. It was my least favorite form of culinary journalism. I hated being a critic. I loved writing about food. I don't like going and critiquing restaurants. As fun as it seems, it's a high-stress position for those who have a soul. Yes. That's a rare thing these days, I'll give you. Wholeheartedly. Every writer in the world, every professional writer in the world, from the shittiest little rags to the highest levels of whichever ones you choose to respect out there in your own Mm -hmm. little circle, we all make mistakes. You don't get all the details. You make a false assumption. You read a fact incorrectly. Whatever. It happens, no matter how fastidiously you fact check your story. Yeah. And every once in a while, those mistakes make it past your editors and go to print. And every critic in the world has made a mistake about something they went on to criticize someone for. Fair. The difference between the critics I respect and the ones I don't respect is how they react to that situation. Some people realize, hey, man, it's a mistake. Mistakes happen to everyone. So they write it off as inevitable. Others lose sleep over it every single fucking time. I lost sleep over it every time. These are people like me. We realize that we have the power to fuck with someone's livelihood in some way, large or small, and my incompetence harmed someone in oh, some way. Yes. And I agonize over that over and over again. 
I'm in that category. I think every old school critic I've respected was the same type of person. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that all old media critics were, generally speaking, more likely to be that type of person. But I do know that the ones who don't lose, the ones who didn't lose sleep over it were eventually weeded out of the profession by editors who had standards, who were worried about their publication's reputation. And I know that social media doesn't weed out that type no. of person. I know many writers who love bashing places in their writings, usually their online writing, without editors who are there to fact check them or mm -hmm. show them any ethical standards because people love a hater. Hateful posts get lots of likes and we are addicted to likes yes. like the mayor of D.C. was addicted <laughs> to crack in this country. <laughs> I know that's an old reference. That I don't know where that one came to mind. But... It was just addiction, I thought, Marion Barry. <laughs> I don't know. It's not in my notes. I, I wouldn't have written that one out. Um, you know, I actually know one writer who started a feud with a beloved national food personality based on a misstatement that the local food writer made about that superstar's wife and told me he wasn't worried about the fact that he was wrong in what he'd written because it was getting him thousands on oh thousands God. of hits. That's uh, low. But look, when you do agonize over some unfair attacks you've made on a few joints, you get into the habit of quadruple checking every single fact, assumption, insinuation, and interpretation that goes into or might be inferred from your negative statements. And when I see people who don't do it, I feel compelled to have a counter-argument on behalf of those who don't seem to give a shit. And let's be fair, you don't have to give a shit to attack a joint on social media or Yelp. And you have every right to do that. But if you're doing it in um, a, a thread that I created, then I'm going to seize the opportunity Absolutely. to say, well, I your do thread, give you a have shit, said. man. Yep. And I'm going to call out what I find the most egregious. So, yes, may call me an ass kisser. Call me. Call the fact that I feel that way, you know, that, that that makes me a cheerleader for restaurants. I'll fucking deal with that, okay? I stick up for restaurants I think are being unfairly attacked because somebody has to stick up for them against that mentality, that level of unaccountability, especially when it's beginning to look like a pile-on based on an incorrect fact, an unfair expectation, or the general sense of entitlement that runs through both amateur and professional food writing. In the interest of full disclosure, I'm going to tell you, I've been working with Wolfgang Puck and his people professionally for 20 years. I think we have a good relationship. It's been good most of that time. I've also written things that have pissed them off in a big way. <laughs> I've had them very angry with me about things I've written to the point that I was told I'd never talk to him again, wow. that he'd never speak to me again. Um, I've never removed things because they didn't like it because they didn't like something. I've stuck up for things because they were true. Yep. They were researched. They were confirmed. They were on the record. We've worked it out. Those were decade, decade plus ago. I do like them, but I am not afraid to say what I think about them mm -hmm. or to report things that they don't like. If anybody feels that I'm in their pocket or some shit like that, I can give you some publicists to call that can tell you some stories. About <laughs> well, I'll do that. I'll tell you off the record, uh, off, the, off air with this, and you can vouch. Um, so look, with that said... Let me just make, let me let me address a few of the points, Gemini. I'm going to make it clear you're not the kind of writer I was just railing against. Obviously, oh, thank you. That's why I love to hear your opinion on everything. And you were not trashing this place, as you told me later. You received some bad information from an employee. You wanted to let people know what you yeah. learned about the hours. That is fair. Nothing pisses me off personally more than a restaurant that doesn't honor its posted hours. I've done a podcast on the topic. Yes, I fucking Gio Maro in. That. We piled on people that did that. So I say it's a shitty thing and a stupid thing when restaurants don't honor their hours. But clearly, this was a new joint. I had not seen posted hours anywhere. And you clearly had been 
hearing a lot more bitching about the place than I have. So um, I'm going to express, unless you, unless you want to jump back in now, I'm going to go a few point by point. No, I think your points are good. I think I've made my points. Um, one of my biggest comments might be that I think that, and social media is the biggest part of the problem, is that I find less and less honesty in food writing. We're always trying to talk about all the great things, but nobody's willing to talk about even hopefully researched, double-checked, all of these things. Everything just seems to be happy-go-lucky anymore. Everybody wants to read the happy. I love this conversation Oh, I don't think anybody... I think people love to read hate on social media. They love to read it, but that's not what's going to sell the stuff that needs to be sold, right? Like Mm -hmm. That's why I said social media is part of the problem. Because on social media, they can make angry faces and they can do all of these quick little things and be a part of the conversation. And for those who can't see us, obviously, I'm using (laughs) air quotes. Um, and they're not really adding anything to it. They're not doing any research. They're not talking to people. Um, you know, as you know, I do try to talk to people. I try to record the interviews. I try to make sure that I've got all the details directly from the horse's mouth before we go into anything else. So I just find lately, though, that when we're talking about new things, everything is meant to be, oh, it's so great. And people add things like, oh, I can't wait to go there. That adds nothing to the conversation. So if you're going to get into it, I want people to really think, I think you're making the point that needs to be made, which is understand it more. Don't just jump on the hate stuff um, and actually go and experience it. So, yeah, my experience wasn't great. But it doesn't mean I'm not going to go back and try again. I think as much as you say that people like to say positive things, I think that we have a really negative trend. And I blame this not on the Internet, but actually on Top Chef, Chopped, and all these shows. Sure. Which is that people think that no matter how great a fucking meal is, their job is to tear it to fucking pieces because that's what judges do on those TV shows. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if that's why you're going out to eat, fuck you. Stay home. Save some fucking money. Right. If you're not enjoying the experience, there is that part. If you're not enjoying the experience and you're literally there to just pull the damn thing apart, why are you there? But why if you are go you spending in and you the money? spend a ridiculous amount of money for an average <laughs> meal, by all means, tell people. I was a critic for many years. You want me to give you a list? Tell, call our friend Gino Bernardo about things I wrote about him. I mean, these are my friends. I've said mean shit about their sure. restaurants, right? So, um, yeah. Uh, so, look, I get that. Okay. So, I'm going to go through a few talking points. This is going to be the whole fucking show. Rich is going to go, guys, you gave me three we're hours. Gonna have, we're going to have like a 90 minute show today. And yeah, and I don't give a shit. I'm having fun. I'm in a mood. The Knights won the cup, people. I don't have Rich looking at me, telling me I'm being unprofessional, making me behave like a responsible grown-up. I'm having fun, man. I hope everybody else is having fun. I honestly do. I hope you guys are enjoying my stupidity here today. Um, Okay. A few talking points. Calling this an initially undisclosed straight corporate management. Are you kidding? This is a problem that there's corporate management down there? Does anybody have any idea what major corporations are involved in the rest of your fucking favorite arts right. district restaurants? Even have, if have you even done if the it fucking seems math? Like a small company that's managing a few things. Keep yeah. digging, people. Yeah, keep digging. Keep <laughs> that digging. Part and that I agree great with. because they help things happen. But I mean, I could tell you another celebrity chef who's invested right on that same street at a place you and I both love. Yep. We don't talk about it because they don't ask for it to be talked about, right. and that's fine. The decision whether you want it to be talked about or don't want it to be talked about is up to them. But as you can see here, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't that's right there's no way to fucking win on that one people this idea that they have no unique offerings no unique offerings and this is somebody that said who went on to reply when i said this is a great bakery they said oh the arts district needs another bakery 
Well, I don't know of a lot of bakeries Are in the there bakeries district. down there? I mean, you know, Freed's is down there, I guess, and um, whatever. Don't get me wrong, Freed's is fine, but I wouldn't consider them like an artisan bakery. No, and it's not overflowing with fucking bakeries, no. and that's just a dessert shop that yeah. they have there. There are other bakeries of bakery, and they're yeah. very good. Um, but now, what's it a, what, what, the, what are there maybe too many of? Well, no, there's not too many of anything, but what are there maybe a lot of? Uh, craft beer bars. But, you know, the person who was mad about there being too many bakeries, I think, works at a craft beer bar. <laughs> so I don't understand. I welcome all the craft beer bars. Have more as many as you want. Bring in a fucking lot more um, bakeries. But also, no unique offerings. Now, this makes me sad, but I'm guessing a lot of people don't know the name Kamel Gachita. Do you know the name Kamel Gachita? No. I have to be honest, I do not. Okay. So a quick history lesson, people. Yes, that's why the old man has the podcast, because he's got <laughs> old man stories. Kamel opened Robichon in MGM, where he created their otherworldly bread cart. Won a James Beard Award for Best Pastry Chef. He was later went to work for Wolfgang Puck and oversees all of his breads worldwide. During the pandemic, he sold his incredible bread out of Wolfgang Puck's player's locker in downtown Summerlin. I was thrilled. I could buy Kamel Gacheta's bread and take it to my home. Yeah. This is a big fucking deal to be able to buy it retail. <laughs> and if you don't know, now you know. Now you know. Okay? Because right. if you know, you know. It, you know how few people, like... Got to experience the um, the Robichon bread cart oh, in the yeah. world, and if you have, I mean, am, am I lying? Is it not an experience? It's pretty much an epic experience, all on its own. Yeah. yeah. So here's here's the motherfucker that. Oh, sorry, man. No <laughs> disrespect fine. to you, Kamel. I, I love you, Kamel. I do. I love my remember, man. Great guy. But um, you know, here's the guy that is is just one of the world's best bread makers, and um, you're not going to find better bread than his in Las Vegas. You'll find some other fantastic breads in Vegas, maybe as good as his. I'm not going to say that they're not as good, but um, you know, James Trees makes fucking wonderful bread. Gio Morrow makes fucking wonderful bread. I'm not putting those people down, but I think they'd be the first to tell you that you'd be lucky to get a loaf of Camel Gachetta's bread. So, no unique offerings, my ass. <laughs> Now, let's go on to these, this idea from you and others yeah, that yeah. we need more homegrown talent. Let me get this fucking right on the record right now. <laughs> the Wolfgang, Wolfgang Puck, personally, has been taking chances on the Las Vegas culinary scene since before most of today's food influencers were born. There was a time in 1992 when rodeo fans lined up at the open kitchen in Spago because they thought it was a buffet. That's the world that he fucking came <laughs> into. All of you people who look at how great the food is in Las Vegas right, right now, bow down. You are not worthy. It would not be there if not for him and a handful of other people. It's a simple fact. He trained staff to a level that Las Vegas had never had before. He brought outside chefs in who went on to stay here and make this town their home. He has contributed to every fucking charitable event that has happened in Las Vegas in 30 fucking years. He's a member of our community. He is everywhere. His people are everywhere. Most of his, many, many of his corporate executives live here. Um, you know, today's best and brightest chefs are only able to see into the future because they are standing on the shoulders of a handful of culinary giants, and Puck is one of those giants. Do not act like he ain't homegrown talent. I call bullshit. There you go. I would say tell me how you really feel, but... Yeah, I'm in a mood. <laughs> I love this I'm mood. I'm in a mood. I'm going to lose I every fucking listener we ever had today, man. 
Um, this idea that it's direct compete, we don't need another bakery. I guess I sort of said that. What's it directly competing with? I mean, who, who's it going to put in out of business? In that area, there's nobody that I'm aware of. No. By the way, Vincent... I mean, directly. It's not that people aren't there making good bread and things like that, but they're not actual bakeries. They're not meant to be that kind of place. Yeah. So... There's also a thing that that people need to understand, and I get this idea that, like, uh, first of all, I understand that I'm a lot older than the demographic that the Arts District is trying to get, right? Like, those are younger, hipper, trendier people. Um, and I remember living in New York City when I was hanging out. I was working at CBGB in the East Village. I was young and hip at one point in my life. <laughs> um, and we hated that these great chefs from uptown were opening restaurants down mm -hmm. there. I once not only spit over the wall of Bowery Bar into oh their dining God. area, I went to perform a poem about it at a poetry slam <laughs> that night because now I was I wish so I'd offended been there. by this shit, okay? <laughs> That's what I'm hearing in a lot of this hatred. Like, sure. why does he have to come downtown? And here's the deal. I didn't want the East Village to develop into a culinary scene. I wanted it to be for junkies and punk rockers. Yeah. I mean, that's, and prostitutes and things, you know, the pe my people, right? Yeah. Like, um, but what I saw living in New York City, what I've seen after years of reporting on food is that when the big guys go into a neighborhood, they don't hurt the local mom and pops. They bring more attention. They bring more business. They help a scene to grow. As much as every trendy person who loves the Arts District today thinks the Arts District is big enough and doesn't want it to get any bigger, I can assure you that the business owners do not feel that way. I would hope They I want it to get bigger and having a Wolfgang Puck restaurant in there, having another great restaurant in there, draws more eyeballs. Is it fair? No. I made it a point to take a tour of the Arts District with representatives of other cities that the Special Food, Specialty Foods Association, um, yeah, sorry, it was during um, the Fancy, it, food, the fancy show. food Show, yeah. Specialty Foods Association, there's another organization that I'm singeing on their name, that asked me to do a tour for um, yep. food creators. And I decided I wanted to take them to the Arts District and show them around because they'd never heard of it. These are people in the industry. They'd never heard of it. Yeah. I do my part every fucking day to spread this gospel. Yeah. But if having Wolf down there, and I know you do. I know you do your part, and I know these people who are mad they do, do their, their part, part every day Absolutely, to spread the gospel, and I love them for that. But I believe there's a level of naivete. Sure. I'm using a nice word there. <laughs> you, know, you don't know how many are running around in my head. The level of naivete to think that bringing somebody like Wolfgang Puck does not only jumpstart the, um, the arts district and bring it to a higher level, bring more business down, get more investors down there. Um, it also makes more people willing to write about the off-strip dining scene in the national press. Same thing with Michael Mina and his people going into the Southwest. These are good things for a food scene. Yeah, you may, you may lose your little cookie little club. And oh, I know it sucks when that band you like actually gets a right. record deal. But, you know, <laughs> suck it up, Cupcake. It's a business out there. <laughs> oh, man, I got par I'm parched after parched. this shit. Um, okay, finally, inconsistent and limited hours. You know, I've been over this. This is what a soft opening is. It's why, and a lot of people don't even know what a soft opening means. But, um, you know, up until Yelp came along, professional food critics had a, had a rule of kind of conduct. They probably still have it, but nobody, I doubt, follows it. I think it was you wait till a restaurant's open six weeks before you go in. Okay. You visit it at least twice before you report on yep. it. I mean, there, there were guidelines, right? Then the fucking Yelpers came around and started writing about things on day one. That went to shit. 
So restaurants started trying to keep it quieter and quieter. They try to keep it quiet, and the unwritten agreement between professionals is that if something bad happens in a soft opening, you certainly bring it to the attention of the public, let them know it, but to bitch about it is unfair. They're saying we're soft. They're saying we, we never promised you anything. We just opened our doors. That's right. all we did. If they don't promise something that they, if they don't deliver on something they promise you when you walk in the door, sure. like happened to you, yep. good, good reason to complain. Absolutely. Yep. But that they don't have their shit together during a soft opening, that's, that's what a soft opening means. And it is really, really sad. I have never and never will criticize a restaurant for mistakes that are made during a soft opening. You can listen back to every podcast yep. I've made here. I do mention things that they did wrong, but I give them a little slack for that. Um, and I call that as the time before they send out a press release, before they start taking out right. ads, before they start promoting, before they say, come in, right. right? And this is what we have to offer. I have a giant issue with people who criticize people restaurants during that time frame. Yes, if you're not a professional, you don't know that. You don't have to know that. Sure. You certainly have no responsibility to do that. Write your fucking Yelp review. That's why I dismiss Yelp reviews for <laughs> exactly. being worth nothing. Write your own social media posts. I will not attack you on your own social media right, posts for raising post, these things. Your, your fucking post, man. Yep. People know. But if it's brought up around me, I will raise that issue because I feel very, very strongly about yeah. it. God, we, that's the, and that's our show for today. <laughs> Sorry, other interviews. Actually, not our show today, um, but moving on. I'll talk more about some of my meals shortly that I've had, but Gemini, and we got to rock through this really quickly. I'm sorry. I ate up all of our time, but um, where have you eaten this past week? Uh, you know, not a whole lot, so this will be quick. I popped into a couple of places. Uh, everybody knows I love me some Shanghai taste, so I grabbed some food from there. You know, I'm a sucker for the rice with the Chinese sausage. It's a lot lighter than the fried rice, which is why I like it. It's got some some veggies in it, things like that, but nothing too, too heavy. Uh, the crab yolk, Xiaolong Bao, is probably my absolute favorite thing that they make. Um, the ox tongue is really, really, really beautifully done, super tender, super flavorful, and the fish wonton soup. So I had to have those. I don't remember what I paid for those. Sorry, guys. Um, I just kind of grabbed everything and ran. Um, we did go to the Martini in the shopping center on the southwest corner of Fort Apache in Charleston to watch the Game 3 of the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs, which was a lot of fun. Not overly crowded, but still a really good turnout and uh, you know the banter was good the drinks were flowing for happy hour the snacks were really tasty we just had chicken wings and a cob salad lovely remind me sometime to tell you about how I got some people fired from that place oh completely my unintentionally oh, it wasn't no. even shit that I wrote it was just shit that I didn't write oh no again I'm, I got some battle scars from things oh, I've done in this do. business man um, and then we just popped into Rebra on Sunday evening for drinks no food um, just meeting up with a friend who happened to be in town for a conference uh, so not much or other to report than their happy hour is really great. They offer a lot of different things for four or five, six dollars a piece. There was three of us. I think the whole bill with a tip was like seventy five bucks, and we were sitting there for hours. Service is really great. They didn't mind that we were ordering. We're not ordering food, um, and yeah, the people are just wonderful. So just another reminder that Rira is there in the Mandalay shops between Mandalay and Luxor, and uh, it's always a fun place. It was packed. Every seat was taken except for a few in the back, and that's where we kind of set up shop and just really enjoyed a, a quiet afternoon. Cool. Um, I had a lot of fun at the flanker opening party. How was that? Yeah, I walked right by it, of course, to go to Rerah. It, it was really <laughs> awesome. Um, I actually got to see Chance out of costume. I haven't seen ah! him out of costume in years, so we were chatting. He was really psyched. Um, I had my first ever chili cheese dog with shaved black truffles. Yum. So I'll leave it at that, man. I'm like, I'm going to mm. like this place. I mean, 
I wouldn't order that again. I'm going to be completely honest. <laughs> but the fact that they did it, fucking ballsy, love them. Um, congrats to everybody over there. Great team. We've talked about it a lot, so I'm not going to go too deep or any deeper, to be honest. I went to the Ipono preview pop-up at Red Rock over the weekend, and I spoke to Chef Gene Villatoro about the concept that he's preparing to bring to the new Durango Casino when that opens. So excited. He was actually cooking as we spoke, um, and he did make sure... Uh, yeah. Please take a note of this. He made sure to correct me when I called his cuisine Hawaiian street food. It ain't Hawaiian street food, and you'll hear why. So first of all, how's it feel to be back here cooking in Las Vegas again, man? It's, it's good. A lot of fucking stress, but it's good. Yeah? Yeah. What made you want to come back to Vegas? I mean, you had something good going on in um, California, and you've been here before. What made you think that this is a concept that would work for Vegas? Uh, you know what? I lived here for 25 years prior to California, and the Hawaii community is large. So why not? It makes sense. No-brainer. Tell people what Hawaiian street food is all about if they don't know. Well, Some of us haven't been to Hawaii. Well, one, it's Hawaii street food, not Hawaiian. Okay. Right? Because there's no such thing as Hawaiian street food. But Hawaii street food is a combination of all, all ethnicities that make up the Hawaii culture. Right? So a lot of people consider Hawaiian food like 95% of the people in public. But it's not even Hawaiian food. It's Hawaii street food is what they're doing. Not even Hawaii food. So what are the influences that go into it? Filipino cooking, Korean, Chinese, Portuguese, uh, Japanese, Korean. All those type of flavors make up Hawaii street food. One more. I, also, I had some great bites at the Kalisto Oyster Bar in Red Rock this week. Oysters, ahi tacos, and some very good clam chowder with a giant goldfish cracker that was just really badass. <laughs> and that is it for the top of the show. The top of the show. <laughs> Man, I know. I hope there's still some. Oh, my gosh. Guessing they pushed fast forward through me a few times. <laughs> Coming up in the news, we've got a few things to share with you. But first, a couple of extended interviews with two serious local foodies. One with happy news, the other not so much. This is Food and Loathing. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Here you are in Vegas, you're hungry, and the choices are endless. But do you really want to trust the crowd? You can trust Neon Feast, restaurant recommendations from real food pros sharing where they send friends and family. All that knowledge is just a download away on the Neon Feast app. You want the strip, off strip, downtown, great views, great value? Find smart, informed restaurant recommendations on the Neon Feast app and neonfeast.com. Want more? Ah, uh, we got more. Find me every Thursday morning around 810 on The Club, AM 670 KMZQ. On TV, you can find me Mondays around 830 AM on Wake Up With The CW. And the Neon Feast updates happen all week long on all of the highway radio stations all over your FM dial. The Vibe, The Drive, Highway Country, or go to highwayradio.com. As you may have read on offthestrip.com and on social media, Diana Breyer and her parents, Terry and Burgess, have decided to sell the beloved local icon Valley Cheese and Wine, located on Henderson, excuse me, in Henderson on Horizon Ridge, west of Stephanie. 
This is an emotional piece. This was the perfect shop for Diana, who has all the professional letters and cheese after her name, to elevate cheese in the Las Vegas Valley like it hasn't been done in a long time. But Las Vegas isn't for everyone. It's hard on people. It's hard on small culinary businesses. Mom and Dad want to go back to retirement, and Diana says she's looking for a spirit-soaring experience that she just hasn't been able to find here. We dig a little deep and hear it straight from the cheesemonger herself. It's time for somebody to love it a little better than I can. Um, Why do you say it that way? Well, I think that being in a business for three years with your family presents a unique set of challenges, especially when you're in a COVID lockdown procedure for the first you know, year and a half of it. Um, there were a lot of challenges that have been presented. My parents are ready to go back to being retired. And I'm kind of ready to let my spirit run free a little bit. I'm committed to the future of Valley Cheese and Wine. So I want somebody to really be able to say yes to things that I haven't had the emotional, physical, or intellectual wherewithal to be able to say yes to myself as an owner. Sure, sure. So you mentioned, um, you know, being open since COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, You signed your lease in February before we knew that we were talking lockdowns and how big that was going to get. Yeah, Um, Yeah, that was a cute little move on the universe's (laughs) part. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about the start of of what I mean what what is that like you know you you're excited you find this place it's it's in your wheelhouse I mean you're the only cheese person I know with more letters after your name than are in the alphabet and Mary fucking Poppins over here (laughs) at your service (laughs) right you keep just pulling shit out of that carpet bag I don't know what we're gonna be doing just watch me now (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly that's that should be the title um so you don't know that that's going to happen, no. and then it does. Right. So let's let's dial back a little bit and just what was it like walking into what was obviously a perfect spot for you just to have the world turn around and go, hi, you know, um, fuck off for a minute. Right. Hey, go fuck yourself. Ready, set, go. <laughs> so that was a cute. That was again cute. Um, so we took over. We ended up with the hands actually changing in July because we were in our NDA and we had signed the purchase agreement and we were like taking over the previous owner's lease. So we knew in February that this was going to happen. Um, and then so we expected everything to go sort of normal timeline. And then in March, the world shut down. And so when all the government offices were shut down, the acquisition of the business was paused and we all went into lockdown and my family, I quarantined with my parents so that we could just brainstorm for however long we were stuck together. Yeah. We ended up taking over the business, actually kind of a little bit um, serendipitous, on my father's 70th birthday on July 27th <laughs> of 2020. Happy so birthday, still- Burgess. <laughs> By Happy the way. birthday. Here's a lot of stress. You're welcome. XOXO. So we really started off having to hit the ground, not even running, but sort of at like a mental run and a physical crawl. So we had just been doing all of this time brainstorming all these things we wanted to do. And then we realized when we got into the shop, It was an opportunity for us to say yes to consumers, to our customers, to our customer base and our community. What do you need from us during this time? And you would not probably be surprised how many Las Vegans need cheese and wine while they're stuck at home doing nothing to do. So we were, we started doing this curbside program. The previous owner, Solène, had done a great job at sort of kickstarting or just getting that set up as a baseline. Um, And then I was like, why can't we do cheese and charcuterie boards curbside? That's no different than handing someone anything else. Right. So we started to do cheese and charcuterie boards curbside. Then we started to do this happy hour program, which I was really invested in having because as it stood when we took over, we weren't even serving any wine or cheese in the shop. And there's definitely the space for that. We had the license for that so I wanted to make sure that I latched onto the idea of a happy hour because everybody was so fucking sad yeah um 
So we started offering our happy hour to go curbside, you know, and really trying to make sure that we were listening to the needs of our community while at the same time being responsible and conscious about, you know, our public health. So that's the probably third or 400th time in a best in the best way um, that the word community has come up um, with me talking to you over the past few weeks. And, and in mm-hmm. general, I mean, you know, to yeah. be fair, we've been friends for a while. Yeah. Um, so we talk a lot of shit <laughs> <laughs> with cheese and wine, which in just in case anybody and about all of you as well, all of you listening, <laughs> but we love you. Um, and uh, but just, so you know, we are drinking wine while we do this. So, um, you know, we're going to have some fun. Um, but tell me, what does that word community mean to you? Because I know that this is such a community-oriented shop. It's such a community-oriented community family. Yeah. Um, when you walk in in the middle of COVID, like you said, you know, you want to hit the ground running, and the only part of that is your mind going nuts, trying to figure out all these things that you can do. Yeah. You're, you're stuck with all of these physical slowdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you build that community and then keep it going into I mean you have parties every week I think uh, maybe <laughs> twice a week and sometimes they're more chill sometimes they're yeah. karaoke parties I mean you've got such a great following and such a great group of people that that love this space I'm proud of our customers so much I think we did a really I think it's one of the proudest thing community to me is so important especially in Las Vegas and I really I really am, am able to sort of understand and adopt that from my time here. I want everyone to walk through this door and realize that even though there's a very high level of knowledge and high curated like boutique wines and cheeses I have to go pick up from the airport myself because I don't want to get the cheese that's just available here because that's what everybody else has. Right. Um, So even though there's a very high like level of boutiquiness and Um, maybe a little high level of anxiety for the first time consumer coming in and not recognizing the name of anything. Right. Um, But I want everyone to come in here and feel like they're part of my space, my vibe, which is very, I would like to think on most days, uh, very welcoming, um, very much inclusive. Um, When I say community, I also want to make sure that I'm taking care of marginalized populations like LGBTQIA, my own community. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to make sure that there's a space that's open and welcome for them and everyone except racists. But the way we do it, yeah, that's yeah, no, no thanks. But the way we do it is by just being friendly and just making sure that we share that space and being human beings. We talked with our customer, we speak with our customers as though we're just your we're just your friend that's mm-hmm. here to talk about cheese with you. Like, you'll watch me monger, and I'm just having normal ass conversations with people, and there's cheese involved, and we have a great time, and they leave with great cheeses, and they don't feel like they've been spoken down to, or it's not pedantic in any way. Um, and then we really did create a vibe and a space where um, before it was like all the fluorescents were on at a hundred percent. It wasn't really a place where you felt like even though there was space to do so, physical space to do that, so there maybe wasn't that sort of like soulful, vibey space in which right. to come, sit, stay. <laughs> and so it's really been important to me to cultivate that kind of community in my own cheese and wine shop because there's so many people that I feel aren't doing it right. Right. You know, and it's not anyone's fault for wanting to come in and they've been drinking box wine their whole lives, but now they're curious. The mm-hmm. last thing that they want is someone to talk over their heads or speak down to them or act like they're not worth their time because they don't know what they're doing. I think those are the people who need 
that sort of soulful engagement more when it comes to dipping your toe into something that might be a little new and scary, especially with your palate. Absolutely. Sure. And so one of the things you guys have also kept doing, um, and I know that you're going to keep doing through as long as you own the place, because mm-hmm. um, you, you and usual. I have talked about this, yep, are classes for those who do want to delve in deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've done some pretty interesting classes. Can you tell me about one or two of your favorites? Yes. Uh, one of my favorites classes was the 90s nostalgia class that we did. Um, and that one was the whole classroom was decorated in 90s gear. It was all neon. We had Saved by the Bell going oh on my the God. TV on mute. And everybody actually, the I had rearranged the tables to look like a lunchroom, like a cafeteria. <laughs> um, and I had a sack lunch on everybody's space um, and it had their name on it. And then inside was like a little words. of I, Everybody got their own little words of affirmation written on a napkin from me. Yep. Um, but inside was all the things that we used to eat. We elder millennials, we sort of like in this, you know, 30 to 50 time zone, yeah. time frame, time, time zone, age, age range. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thanks. Um, really sort of all can latch on to that nostalgia. Um, so in that sack lunch, there was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There were potato chips. There was a Reese's peanut butter cup. There was a fruit cup and there was a Capri Sun and I paired them all with cheese and wine. That's amazing. You got this really interesting experience. It was very like knowledge based because I have to explain why the hell does a Reese's peanut butter cup work with a mixed milk cave aged Basque cheese that's made with sheep and goat and is mite ripened. Why the hell does that work? Yeah. But it does and it's beautiful. And so it was very like educationally driven, but the point of it was to have fun and play. Yep. Um, and so I, I really appreciate when I can meld those two. So moving on to some of the pairings and some of the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because we are talking about the fact that you're for sale, but the shop is for sale. <laughs> <Hey-o>. <laughs> um, but I also want to talk about why you got into this and, and, and where that might take you. So when you talk about some of your most favorite pairings, what, are, what are some of those? What are some of the most shocking pairings that people just, I know for me, shocking? I can, yeah. So I know for me, one of your parties was chocolate and blue cheese. Mm-hmm. And I think once I learned that one, I don't think I tasted anything else that night because I wanted to save room for just eating chocolate and blue cheese. Chocolate and blue cheese is an un- <laughs> unsung hero of the pairings world. You know, you often think about blue cheese pairing with port and port as a fortified wine and tends to be very sweet on the palate. And so it's like extrapolate those sort of concepts and move them to other delivery vehicles like food. And you really have a lot of room to play. Yeah. Um, Someone like me, who's kind of like a female rain man of cheese, I have a Rolodex of thousands of cheeses. And so I'll taste anything. And I'm like, oh, this is the cheese who's mentally raising its hand in my brain. And I can make that pairing. And usually it's correct. Yeah. Um, So favorite pairing. I mean, there have been so many over the years. Blue cheese and chocolate is definitely one. I really love what happens with tin fish and cheese. We have um, we have a beautiful one that's a, a natural Chablis with a Loire Valley goat cheese um, and... Oh man, what did we put on top of it? It's so freaking beautiful. It is a, it's an anchovy that's in sunflower oil and it's just, everything is so light and bright and ebullient on the palate that it's just, it is so summery and so unexpected. A lot of the tin fish and cheese and wine pairings, you're just like, what the cuss words is going on? (laughs) Cause we've avoided those so far today. Um, okay. So let's, let's, let's get a little bit deeper. So if we're talking about some of the fun stuff that we love to taste. Sure. Um, we know some of the why, but mm-hmm. tell us why. Why Why the change? Why the sale? Why moving on? 
It boils down to like sometimes you have to break your heart to save your soul. Okay. And I've done it a million times and I'll do it every time. And what does that mean for you right now? This shop is my everything. <laughs> like, it's my heart, it's my soul. It's the relationship I have loved for so many years. Yeah. But not every relationship lasts forever. Right. And not every career decision we make for ourselves has to be the last career decision we ever make for ourselves. Never. And not every choice is permanent. And I think the only thing that is permanent is that nothing is. And so uh, practicing that sort of level of attachment to something that I'm starting to recognize is not really feeling my spiritual cup anymore um, is not something that I want to continue to do. Yeah. Um, I don't want to practice attachment to something that is fundamentally hurting me. Um, doesn't mean I don't love it. Of course not. It means I love it so much that I would rather somebody who, again, can say yes where I've had to say no, might have the wherewithal or the means to do things that I haven't been able to because of staffing or money or COVID or my own health. Yeah. This shop is at a precipice. It is ready to explode. It has a good following, a good good programming a good community and a great space. It just needs a lot more yeses than I'm willing to give right now. So what are you going to do for you? What 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 are the next <laughs> some of the next steps or even ideas for next steps cuz like you said not every decision is permanent. Right. Um I've known you for a long time and so I I feel like it's safe to say that I can say that you know you're always looking at new opportunities and you're always looking at new things to learn and do and see and 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 be in places that are going to feed you so what does all of that mean right now so we know there's no timeline right right, at the moment Mm -hmm. so understanding that Mm -hmm. what are some of the things you're putting on your vision board for the next steps. It's interesting because I, again, I'm committed to the future of the shop and I keep iterating and reiterating. But, um, so that would mean that I would be available to the new ownership should they choose to continue the cheese program. I imagine that if you would like to purchase Valley cheese and wine, you might want to keep cheese in the conversation unless you're (laughs) rebranding, but Hey, um, we get called Valley wine and cheese so much. (laughs) Um, but it's important to me to, to at least try and assert that there needs to be a maintenance of the level of cheese that that I was able to provide. Mm-hmm. That's going to be difficult for new ownership because most people who are who are sort of racking their brain about whether this is a possibility for them are very wine focused humans, and a lot of wine people have like a rudimentary or baseline education in cheese because they do go so well together. But no one does cheese the way I do cheese, and no cheese program in this town is like my cheese program, and. And the way we talk about it and the way we tell its story and the way we pair it, there's nothing like it. And so I really, I want to remain available to new ownership should they want to retain me for consulting or store management. I'm open to all those sort of possibilities. Um, In the meantime, I kind of want to get into the beverage side of things and just really solidify my knowledge of beverage. I have a lot of great contacts through the shop and through just knowing a bunch of wonderful humans Mm -hmm. um, and really solidifying that baseline knowledge of beverage is going to be a fun thing for me because it'll allow me to approach it in an opposite way than I have been um, and really get me focused into in order for me to do cheese better 
I want to know everything that could ever go with it better too. So we're looking at possibly getting a Cicerone certification. I'm looking at getting a W set in spirits so that I have all of that backup. Cause education. you have W set two in wine. I have W set two in wine. Yep. Yes, ma'am. So I really want to just create this sort of master experience anywhere I go. So that's going to look like wonder woman of cheese, LLC. Um, I'm available for consulting pop-ups, you know, menu, you know, menu consultation, just, whatever you need, contract work, all those kinds of things. And my goal is to sort of create that magic anywhere, you know? So it's, it's hard. Um, and there should be that freedom for me um, because I want to, gosh, I light up when I talk about cheese. Uh, yes, I really you do. do. And, and it really is just the thing I, that like roots me to the earth. It's the thing I was like put on the earth to do. It's like unquestionable. And so I don't, yeah, I want to, I want to do that, you know? And so wherever that takes me, I'm open. I'm willing to relocate. I am, I know cheese will make the right choice for me. And whether I have to steer that ship a little bit or not, or something just falls in my lap, I, I trust myself enough to know that my credentials are, are solid and what I bring to the party is, is unique and magical. And whatever that looks like is, I guess we'll see. So tell me a little bit about what it means to expand Wonder Woman of Cheese. Uh, you've mentioned an LLC. You've mentioned consulting. Are you strictly looking at Vegas? Because we've we've also talked about not being tied to a brick and mortar. What does that kind of thing mean for you? That's a great question. <laughs> I feel like the world is my palm wheel and I'm ready to crack it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So that doesn't mean uh, that, that I'm... is that is that's brilliant. <laughs> that's the first time I've heard that, and I think it's completely appropriate. Okay, so the world <laughs> is your palm wheel. You're starting to put the. I know how this works. You're starting to <laughs> put those tiny little knives in the little places and just mm-hmm. create those little cracks. And you go down the line and mm-hmm. you make your things. Sure. And then the whole thing just kind of pops open, open wherever it's supposed and to it's pop beautiful. open. Yeah. And you don't force it, and it just happens. So Correct. I love that you brought that up, and I love that I got to explain a little bit because I know how that works. So <laughs> tell me what you want to do with that. Do you have specific places or things that you want to do, or are you just going to let the wheel tell you where to go? Let Kind of let the wheel tell me, but also have a little bit of a guidance in, in, in where that, what that looks like. So I would, I'm not attached to being in Vegas forever. Um, I did spend a lot of my time in the mountains in Utah. Um, and while nothing about me screams, you belong in Utah, I definitely no. feel called back <laughs> to the mountains and have found a lot of, a lot of kind of like little signs, you know, a lot of that like little angel or devil on your shoulder, just being like, it's Colorado, it's Colorado. And this happened to me before Oregon too. When I was still living in Utah, I was like, God, I think your next cheese move is Oregon. And then like three weeks after that, the owner of Rogue Creamery reached out to me. Yeah. So it's just something that's sort of universal, universally directed. Sure. Um, but I'd like to have control within that. So I want to do like a bunch of weird stuff. I would like to go to different wineries, breweries, distilleries restaurants and do pop-up events that just focus with cheese maybe work with some of these amazing chefs i'm an amazing cheese pro to have a five course dinner that's you know cheese focused but coursed out on their menu Mm -hmm. kind of thing as just as a special event and that doesn't prohibit me 
as far as Vegas goes. I can pop up at breweries in Colorado if I want to. Sure. Or wineries in Napa. What about a cheese food truck where suddenly I just am serving cheese and charcuterie boards on Winery Road? Or, you know, there's... I mean, I'm sure I have to get a lot of permission, but we, <laughs> we, all those damn regulations, like <laughs> stupid fucking rules. So I really just think that there's so many possibilities of a way to attack this industry that is unique, fun, ever changing and impermanent that allows cheese to be a much more relevant part of many more conversations than just the conversations I have within my brick and mortar. Yeah. What are some of the things that you want to do before you hand over the keys? (laughs) Uh, I want to do something for Pride Month for sure. I want to make sure that my community feels the love that I have to give and is able to enjoy themselves in my space. Um, Any particular classes or specialties or special... I kind of sort of make and choose pop-up events and classes based on what's going on around me in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And then I just sort of activate them. And it's usually within a three-day time frame. Um, so we're going to have more parties. Um, and I know that we'll have an anniversary party as well. Because it is coming up on our actual three-year anniversary. Yeah. And I think that it would be definitely bittersweet for me. Oh, no. I'm getting emotional. Um, definitely bittersweet for me. But um, I think it would be a great way to say... Like, thanks and bye. Yeah. Um, I'm so grateful. I came to Las Vegas. A really broken human. And this town and this community and this food and beverage world opened my eyes and lit a fire under my spirit and sometimes under my ass and really solidified who the fuck I actually am. Like, nothing about this decision is a negative for my persona or my negative or, or like my professional persona. There's nothing about this that I did wrong. I think sometimes the mark of excellence is knowing when to step away um, and knowing where our own shortcomings are. And this community has like, really solidified the magic in me. And I'm so grateful for that. But I'm not a permanent person and I'm never meant to be anywhere for too long. Anyway. So it's time for me to take all of the good and just spread it as much as I can. With cheese. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Much love to Diana. And on a happier note, how many Michelin-starred restaurants have you been fortunate enough to dine in? Oof. I'm not sure my count, but I don't think it's ever been more than one or maybe two in a day. In a day? In a day, (laughs) yes. But our next guest, Josh Fikeson, may have dined in more of them in 24 hours than I've been to in my entire life. Oh, my God. I broke the Guinness record for most Michelin-starred restaurants visited in 24 hours. How many did you visit and where did you do it? In, in New York City, uh, mostly in Manhattan, I went to 22 restaurants and ate at 22 restaurants in 24 hours. So, the first, I guess the first thing I have to ask, what's your background in food and beverage? You know, what, what, where do you come to this, this idea from? What's your angle? Uh, I work as a sommelier. I have worked as a chef in the past. I went to culinary school way back when. 
uh, and and I just love fine dining and everything about great restaurants and great food. And you work here locally over at Wynn Las Vegas right now, right? Yeah, I'm at I'm at the Wynn at uh, Lakeside Restaurant. Well, I'm going to have to ask you where I'm going tonight to watch the game before my reservation at uh, Min's Test Kitchen, but we'll talk about that later. Um, so. You are clearly a fine dining fan. You knew what it meant to go to these levels of Michelin-starred restaurants. You're not just somebody who's heard about what a Michelin-starred restaurant meant. That's a massive undertaking. And usually these are restaurants that are meant to be enjoyed for an entire evening. That should be your whole night. What inspired you to cram so many into such a short period of time? Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And great restaurants, Every time on every trip I've ever taken... I want to go to as many great restaurants as I can. And I'm not there long enough to enjoy all of them usually. So this was a great way to try so many different great restaurants in one, in one day. So where did you first hear that this um, record existed? And then how much research did you have to do to figure out you know, what, what all the logistics are? Because you know, as we'll discuss in a, in a minute or two, you, know, you had to, to really do a lot to document this. And I've been following that from the beginning. Uh, a friend pointed out to me that the record was established la- late last year uh, with 18 restaurants and kind of challenged me to see if I could do more just knowing how I like to dine uh, every chance I get. So I started looking into it. The biggest hurdle would be I had to find restaurants that offered a la carte dining. New York has 72 Michelin starred restaurants. Only 32 have a la carte menus, and a lot of those are only available at the bar or uh, during lunch. So I had to map them all and figure out how to fit an a la carte uh, item into their business model. None of the restaurants uh, detoured from what they do to accommodate this Right, yeah, you had to dine there under the normal circumstances and how they operate, so that makes total sense. Um, And then, as we were saying, you had to document this, and I've got a a pile of stuff that you've been sending me from before you you went there, um, where you had mapped out your route in advance, but then you took body cam video and all of that. What are the rules from from Guinness on being official, and was that hard to find out, or was that you just went to a website and figured it out? I had to apply with Guinness. And when you apply, uh, you wait two months, and then they send you the criteria that you have to follow. Uh, Those criteria include uh, video footage of the whole thing, photos in front of each restaurant, photos inside of each restaurant, uh, manager signatures at every restaurant. Uh, I had to have a GPS tracker showing exactly where I was, when I was there, and making sure all of that fits together. Yeah, and I've been looking at this, and it was funny because... um you sent me the receipts from each restaurant. I think that's something that's important to note is that you had to pay for each of these restaurants, right? I did. I couldn't, I couldn't take anything for free. I had to order something off the menu. So how much did you end up spending? The total was less than you would think. It was $593 plus tax and tip. Okay, that doesn't even make sense because that is like dinner in one Michelin starred restaurant a lot of times. I, I don't even know how that was possible for 20-some restaurants. Uh, a tasty menu in a Michelin restaurant can easily be 20 courses, so this would be the equivalent of a 20-course meal. Yeah. 
I guess it adds out if you do it that way. Um, now, were you doing this on your own, or did you have somebody coming along, helping you out, taking some of the photos for you, you know, running the credit card, that kind of stuff? Uh, I had my wife with me. Uh, she was able to take notes about what I ate and take a lot of photos. Um, she wasn't able to help in any way. Like, she couldn't order the food for me. I had to go. I had to order. I had to pay um, just to make sure that that Guinness knows that I accomplished the whole thing and she wasn't interested in eating that much. Cool. Um, okay, so of all these restaurants, what were the standouts for you? Uh, Tomi uh, was fantastic. They had an English pea soup with foie gras, scallop, and enoki mushroom, as well as uh, La Pavillon, which did a wood-roasted octopus with shrimp, iberico pork, uh, rice, and sauce American. Where is the place you'd be most likely to go back and do a full tasting menu? Pavillon, uh, I would definitely do again. Uh, La Bernadan is always great. Any chance I get to eat there. How many of these were your, was it your first time in the restaurant? I think 21 of them. It was my first time. Okay. La Bernadan is the only one I had been to before. And that's one of the few that I've been to on your list. So yeah, that's a, always a great meal at La Bernardin. Um, so, did you hit a point where you were just exhausted and felt like you just didn't want to go on? And, you know, you were either too full or too tired or too sick of trying to negotiate New York City traffic. I think when I would have reached that point, I kind of got excited because I could see the record. I could see the end. And I think it, it motivated me more. How much of this, you know, because getting around New York City, I mean, you know, it's been 20 years since I've lived there. I'm sure it's only gotten worse. Getting around New York City is a nightmare. Making it to every time when I go back and visit, I'm late for my dinner reservations. I'm late for every dinner reservation because I forget how hard it is to get around New York. How much of this did you do on foot? How much of it was done in cabs versus subways, etc.? Most of it was on foot. I thought that'd be a lot easier to take out the variables of traffic. Uh, so I took six uber rides uh and the rest i had to walk no subways no subways i wasn't going to try and navigate that and you also did you were in manhattan and brooklyn were those the two boroughs that you hit correct which isn't bad if you you know i used to live in downtown brooklyn so you could get that trip over the bridge not that rough in time wise going throughout manhattan can be a lot rougher yeah the the majority of the the uber time was spent just going uh to brooklyn and then back to brooklyn at the end of the night so you had 24 hours. What time did you start and what time did you finish? I started at 2.30 in the afternoon uh, so that I could hit the last lunch reservation in Brooklyn, then headed over to Manhattan, hit all the dinner spots, got some rest, and then finished up for lunch again uh, before finishing at 2.30. How many different types of cuisine? A lot of people think that Michelin is almost exclusively going to be you know, French, fine dining, or maybe a little bit of Japanese. How many different types of food did you consume? I started with a, with a Mexican restaurant. Um, a lot of it was French, uh, and a lot would just be described as contemporary. Uh, okay, man. Well, th this is amazing. I know I've got some paperwork that I have to sign for you that because I've been reviewing all your records. So I know that we still have to go through the kind of the verification process. When do you expect to have your name honored by Guinness, and what will that be like? Do you get a plaque? I mean, there's not even a Guinness Book of World Records. You remember when I was a kid, there was the Guinness Book of World Records. There was always that the world's heaviest twins riding bicycles on the back of it. I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember that shit, but is there even still a book that they put you in? 
they do publish the book every year. I haven't seen one in probably since middle school, yeah. but uh, I'll probably pick up a copy next year and see if, if I made the cut for the, the print publication. When will they announce that you're officially the record holder? They said it takes about two months after I submit evidence. Okay, cool. And how are you celebrating? This is what cracked me up because we had to get this interview in on a time frame because after all these meals, you haven't had enough. Tell me how you're celebrating. I'm going to go to the French Laundry next week and do a, a proper tasting menu. Well, it's always great at the French Laundry. It's been too long since I've been there. Tell their team I said hi. Um, man, look, congratulations. Thanks for be letting me be a part just by following around. It was great. You were texting me, showing me pictures of you eating everything. And it's just really, really cool. I think something that is going to make every foodie you know jealous for a long time to come. I kind of hope so. The news is next. This is Food and Loathing. We are all over social media. Just search for Food and Loathing or reach out directly. Info at foodandloathing.vegas. And where am I these days? What am I doing? Most important, what am I eating, cooking, and learning? Find out anytime at wishboneandvine.com. One more time, that's info at foodandloathing.vegas. And my site, wishboneandvine.com. And it's time for the news. Man, i got to keep this quick for you because I ranted for way too long <laughs> already today. Um, Tao Group is bringing in a new Italian concept to the MGM Grand. Lucini is promising a refreshing take on a classic Italian-American restaurant inspired by the flavors of New York. Look for it this fall. Uh, the Brunch Buffet is returning to Buddy V's on Sunday, June 25th. It'll have all the old favorites, antipastos, seafood, carved meats, Farm egg favorites, of course, man. The sweet treats for dessert. That was such a great mm. dessert table. Uh, reservations are highly recommended by contacting the restaurant or going online. Sunday brunch is going to be 55 bucks a head, $24 per child um, if you're under 10. Tax and gratuity are not included. Bottomless libations, including sangria, mimosas, bellinis, domestic beers and wines by the glass, available for an additional $20 per person. And Distill, which is on the Neon Feast app, is one of the Valley's top gaming bars when it comes to great food, is opening its 10th location this weekend. It's in the Inspirata neighborhood at 2293 Via Inspirata. Congrats to that team. Congrats to 10. That's amazing. Yeah, pretty pretty um, nice, nice to see And it's a tasty that. place. I love the Distill. Yeah, I mean, you know, we do have a list of the places that have good food for gaming bars because there yeah. are some out there, and it's good to see them Absolutely. succeed, man. So Even if I don't game much, sometimes I just want to go and... Have a seat, and they have good food. They're totally worth it. Hell yeah. Look, thanks to all of our guests, um, to Josh Fikeson, to Justin Lewandowski, to Jean Villatora, to Diana Breyer, of course. And I think that is about it for this week. Got anything else to add, Gemini? No, I think we had a lot of fun. I think we talked about a lot of stuff. We need to do this more often, I think. We're going to see. Rich is going to yell at us. I know we're going to get yelled at. We're a little bit long today. Uh, way right. long. You know what? We call this an experiment, man. And all you guys have to do is tell me how much it sucks, and I'll go back into my little my little um, proper way of doing this thing quick and short and not, not ranting. Um, until, until next time, man, it's been great. With Samantha Gemini Stevens and Rich Johnson in the um, faraway office, I'm Al Mancini. Stay hungry. <laughs> <laughs>